As we launch in this new year, I'm going to do something uh, a little bit unusual for a Sunday morning. Today, I'm going to talk almost exclusively to the men. And ladies, you're going to want to listen in because I'm going to talk about you and everything that I have to say to the men is going to have a direct impact on you and towards you. But I want to talk to the men as we start a new year because here's what I know about the men in the room and the men that are listening to me and the men in your life. They desperately want to get it right. And you need to know that. They really do. What I, what I mean is they really want to get it right as a man, as husbands, as dads. And for lack of a better term, they want to, to actually feel like they're winning at work and at home and in the relationships that matter most. And one of the other things that you should know is one of the core questions that a man deals with and haunts us from boyhood is, do I have what it takes as a man? And as we move in, from our teens into our 20s and into our 30s and beyond, life, relationships, clarity as to what it means to be a man, the roles that we fill, it it can get complicated, it can feel overwhelming at times, and there's a lot of mixed messages and confusion around what it means to be a man. And in current culture, the term masculinity has taken on almost by default a negative connotation. In fact, one of our guys from New Life invited a friend to come sit with him today, and his friend's immediate response was to the message title, well, that sounds like toxic masculinity. So many men, especially the next generation of men, are left feeling confused and even judged, and there's really no place to look for guidance as to what it means to be a man and what to do with the the traits and the leanings that would be labeled as masculine. And yet one thing that I think that we can all agree on is that something needs to change. What we're doing is not working. With or without COVID, the world is as broken and divided as it's ever been. And the next generation being potentially the most vulnerable generation in history, with the U.S. having the highest rate of children living in single-parent homes, As a father of four grown sons and as a pastor, I have a passion to see men equipped and actively engaged in relationships, the relationships that matter most, and engaged in culture, in social and justice issues, the challenges that our culture is facing, and to see men thrive. Because when men thrive in any culture, when they have a healthy sense of self, and they are engaged with the family and engaged in the community, it is is a statistical, sociological fact. Women and children thrive. The most vulnerable are cared for. Marriages and families thrive. There's a positive impact on an entire culture. And if you don't believe me, Google is your friend. Fact-check me. Fact-check me on any of this. In fact, here's one snapshot from the National Center for Fathering. 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes, which is five times the average. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes, 32 times the average. 85% of all children who show behavior disorders come from fatherless homes. 80% of rapists come from fatherless homes. 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. Fatherless children are twice as likely to drop out of school, while children with fathers who are involved are 40% less likely to repeat a grade. 
in school, 70% less likely to drop out of school, and in fact are more likely to get A's. 75% of all adolescent patients in chemical abuse centers come from fatherless homes. And I could go on and on with the statistics that prove just how critical you as men are to the health of your home, the health of your community, to our culture, and to the next generation. And we must never underestimate what's at stake for you as men to understand your role as a man for your sake, for your wife's sake, for your future wife's sake, and for the sake of her culture and the next generation, your kids, your grandkids, your nieces, your nephews, and the world. And, and that's why I start, decided to start the new year talking to men, because what God has called us as men to be has been confused at best and lost at worst. And our culture and the next generation are paying the price. And if you're a single man listening to, me, listening to me today, then you have the chance to get this right from the very beginning for a potential future marriage and future children. And ladies, as I talk today, especially any single ladies, my, my hope is that this will help, that this will help define the kind of man that you should look for if you are, in fact, in a relationship or looking for or hoping for one in the future to help set the bar because what I'm going to describe is gets to the core of the kind of man that you're most likely to have a lasting thriving relationship with and ladies especially just to prepare you I'm going to wade into a first century text that in our 21st century western way of thinking might cause you to immediately put up your guard especially if you're by nature a leader or a red or a lion or an eight on the Enneagram. You are smart, you're brave, you're confident, you're gifted to lead as a woman, as I know many of you are. Or if you've ever been mistreated by a man, treated as less than in your life or in the home or in school or in the workplace because, because you're a woman, and especially if you've ever been the victim of assault where you were made to feel powerless as a woman, the text that we're going to look at today has been manipulated and abused by men in certain religious circles, primarily by men, and it might appear somehow devaluing of you as a woman at first hearing, but if you hang with me at the end and we get to the author's intended meaning, what's really being described, not the manipulated interpretations men have given to, in certain religious circles, I believe that you'll see it's quite the opposite. In fact, it places a higher value on you than you may even place on yourself, and it places you in a position of honor to be most cherished, which will seem counter, counterintuitive at first because of the wording. So if you get distracted by a text or Amazon or a small human, okay, you're going to hear me say something that I didn't say, and I'm going to get angry emails and texts, or you'll just decide, we just can't go to that church anymore, okay? So just hang with me and don't get distracted. And if you're a man listening to me today, and you go, Chad, listen, I'm not really that much of a spiritual guy, and I'm still uncertain about God and church and Jesus and all that, and my wife may become, and I thought maybe there's beer and pizza afterwards. I don't know. Even if you're not convinced about God and church or Jesus, you're going to have some takeaways. And if you apply them, it doesn't matter what you believe about all that, you will, to again, lack of a better term, you'll win at home as a husband, as a man, as a dad, and have a positive impact, bigger than you can imagine, on culture. So today we're going to look at a New Testament book called Ephesians, even though it's not really a book, 
It's, written, it's a letter written by a man who started out hating Christians, and then uh, he steps onto the pages of history as a one-man wrecking machine seeking to destroy and eradicate Christians and Jesus followers, having them in prison, having them executed. But then about four to seven years after Jesus had been tortured, crucified, and buried, Jesus meets him on a road and essentially knocks the guy off his horse. His name was Saul. We later, he, later his name is changed to Paul. And there's this life-altering encounter with a guy who was supposed to be dead, but he's very much alive. And he did what any of us would do if we crossed paths with the guy who predicted and pulled off his own death and resurrection. We just go with whatever he says. And so Paul becomes, goes from being the greatest destroyer of the church to the greatest church planter that has ever lived. And he planted churches all around the Mediterranean rim. And one of the places that he planted a church was in a city called Ephesus, which is on the west coast of modern-day Turkey. And some years later, Paul writes a letter to them while in prison in Rome because these were essentially baby Christians. They, all they had was a completely pagan background. They didn't even have or really care for what we consider the Old Testament. So they were, in essence, starting from scratch. So Paul would write these letters to help teach them what it looked like to follow and be faithful to a God who loves us. And for us, in this letter, Paul gives us huge insight about both the positional and the practical elements of a man's role when it comes to marriage and family. And what it looks like for a man to live into and lean into his God-given, his God-designed role. So Paul begins with this positional aspect of manhood, saying in Ephesians 5, verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And immediately, again, you're like, whoa, okay, just hang in there. Wives, submit to your own husbands as, as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, which he is the Savior. So Paul's giving a description of how God structured and designed the marriage relationships. So he says, the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his community, his, his movement, his body, that he is the Savior, the, the protector, the guardian. And Paul says that God has positioned the husband in a role, in a role of relational and spiritual leadership in his marriage and family. To put it simply, men, you have been appointed as the head of your wife and the relational and spiritual leader of your family. Now, odds are when you got married, you, that's not what you thought you were signing up for, okay? But according to God, who created you and loves you and who created marriage, part of becoming a husband is that you take on the responsibility by appointment of being the relational and spiritual leader. And you might ask, okay, well, where do you get that? Well, we get that by Paul giving the comparison, the husband is the head of the family, as Christ is the head of his family, the church. That as God appointed Christ as the head and the leader of the church, men, whether you like it or not, whether you knew it or not, whether you feel up to it or not, you've been appointed as the head and the leader of your wife and the relational and spiritual, spirit, relational and spiritual leader of your family. Now, the bottom line is, here's what that means. It means that you're responsible it means you're responsible for everything that happens in your home, good and bad. Relational and spiritual leadership means complete and total responsibility for everything that happens in the home, to which some of you say, well, that's not news to me. My wife tells me all the time I'm responsible for, for the, everything in my home. Okay, there's a difference. What she's saying is it's your fault. Okay, you're to blame for everything. Okay, the good news is you're not to blame for everything that happens in your home. Everything that happens in your home bad isn't necessarily your fault. But regardless of what happens, good or bad, you're responsible. 
And relational and spiritual leadership is about stepping up to the plate and taking responsibility for everything that happens under your authority as head of your family. But if we're honest as men, when we hear that, go like, uh, you know, there's something inside of me. I don't want that. I don't want that level of responsibility, especially if your temperament is more laid back or go with the flow, more golden retriever, more passive in nature. But nearly all of us as men, there's just something inside of us that goes, honestly, honey, seriously, you're really better at this stuff, okay? You take it. I mean, especially when it comes to emotions and feelings and honey, you're just better that, better, better at this, so you take it. And ladies, there's something inside of you that goes, okay, I'll take it. But why? Well, because in the garden, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sinned and everything got jacked up. And as a reminder, we don't take Adam and Eve seriously because it's in the Bible. We take them seriously because Jesus did. And in the garden, everything just got turned upside down. And so what Paul says is so important. He says, men, regardless of how you feel, even though the idea of this level of responsibility may want to make you run in the opposite direction, you know, to avoid it, to abdicate it, Paul says, you're responsible. The buck stops with you. And when you and I refuse to take that responsibility seriously, we end up placing a burden, an emotional weight, a responsibility onto our wives that God never intended for them to carry. Although she is very capable, although she's probably smarter and maybe more able than you, when you place on her a responsibility that God did not design her to carry, one that God has given you, although it may work for a while, eventually things will break down. And then there's this tension and problems that you can't ever seem to put your finger on. And there's this constant string of fires and conflicts. And you wonder, why is my marriage less than happy? And why can't I seem to get this family to work like I want it to? And why and to function? And why is it that my wife and my children don't seem to respect me? It happens because the man has delegated his responsibility. See, we can delegate tasks and jobs and chores. We cannot delegate responsibility. Because God handed it to you when you said, I do. You are the head of your home, the head of your wife, which means that you're responsible before God for everything that happens in your home. And when you and I refuse to take that responsibility, eventually our wives and our children lose respect for us. Just like you lose respect for anyone in society who refuses to take responsibility for what we know they are ultimately responsible for. You may have had something like this happen at work where you had a boss or a director, somebody that was ultimately responsible for your department, and something goes wrong, and then they point their finger, even though it may not be directly their fault when that happens, there's something on the inside of you that dies a little bit towards them because you saw a man shirk his responsibility. And as men, we will make wrong decisions along the way. But here's what we have to understand. Our wife and our family are far more concerned about our willingness to take responsibility than they are about us getting every little decision right or being perfect. When we don't take responsibility, respect gets chipped away and chipped away. And when the respect level in your home drops to a certain point, your influence level drops to a certain drops as well. When we lose the respect of our wives, we lose influence over them. And then when we have to resort, and then we have to resort to either completely withdrawing and pulling back or going the opposite direction and trying to power up, you know, I'm the boss, you know, I'm the man, I'm the head, and resort to rules and commands. Why? Because we've lost our influence. Are we to blame? Not necessarily. 
Are we at fault? Not necessarily, but we are responsible. So how do do we know if we've missed or we've delegated our responsibility? I'll just give you four statements to to, to help you know. The first is that you blame other people and things for the problems in your home while refusing to deal with the problem. See, it's absolutely normal to have challenges and conflicts in the home, but it's not okay to leave them unintended or ignore them and just live with it. If you just let it lie, hoping that it will resolve itself on its own and just ignore it, then you shirk your responsibility. You're like, listen, you know, my wife, she came into this marriage with this problem. I didn't fully understand it, but there was this thing growing up with her mom, and her mom was controlling, or she had this daddy issue, and she came in with all this baggage. So that's why we have all these situations, and I just, you know, I don't really want to deal with it because, you know, it's really her parents' fault, which means it's, you know, it's really her fault. It's everybody else's fault. I don't even know where to begin, so I'm just not going, going to deal with it. Or, you know, work has been demanding, and COVID's been a nightmare, and there's all these things that are out of my control, and I just don't have the emotional energy for it, and you blame other people and other things. When you do that, you're avoiding engaging the problem in your home under the auspices of saying, it's not my fault, and you point the finger. And if that happens, then you have, in fact, backed off your God-given responsibility as a man, as a husband, as a dad. You must engage. Have problems, but don't be content to live with them. Take responsibility to do something about it. Connected to number one, you know that you're abdicating or delegating when you allow your wife to take the blame, especially publicly, for family problems. You've seen husbands do this. Maybe you've done it. There's a situation or a tension or a problem. People on the outside know there's a problem. And so he points his finger at his wife and says, you know, it's it's really kind of her. You know, she's really the source. You know, she's really to blame. I mean, she's kind of like her mom. She's pretty controlling. She's never, never can be on time. You know, she's so emotional. I mean, she, she never should have got that credit card. She's never really been a good driver. You know, she, she overmothers the kids, and that's why we have these problems. You know, if, if your wife is one of those that is chronically late, uh, you know, don't get somewhere and tell people it's her fault. Okay, don't blame me. Just, just take responsibility. We're late. These other things that we're, we're facing, hey, whenever you point the finger at your wife for family problems, then you're not taking responsibility. Number three, you're rejecting your responsibility when you distance yourself from your marriage and family problems. You're like, honey, you'll just have to deal with it. I don't have the time. I don't even know where to begin. You know, just stop overthinking. Stop being so emotional. Just calm down. That always works, right, ladies? Like, a sure way to enrage a woman and risk causing her to commit homicide is to tell her, you're so emotional, just calm down. (laughs) I'll come to your funeral. So, you know, just deal with it. You know, I I just don't have, you know, I got my own set of time problems and pressures and son, you'll just have to call the coach and honey, you know, your problems can't be my problems. I'm busy. Okay, that's a man who's distancing himself from situations and from the problems in the family and the home. When God's called us to take responsibility for that, to be responsible. And then number four, you know you're rejecting responsibility when you don't listen. Now, man, I don't know why this is so hard for us to listen, to really actively listen, but we have a hard time. I mean, especially early in my marriage, I failed at this so often. To my embarrassment, I can't tell you how many times that my wife, Shauna, had to finally just blow up where I finally would get my attention like, oh, 
this is important to you. Like, I was just such an idiot because I didn't, it didn't need to get to that point. And men, we can be so guilty of this. I mean, here's this woman who at least at one time in our life was the most important person to us on the planet. I mean, during dating or an engagement, we were ready to move heaven and earth to win her heart. But now we don't want to listen. I mean, the most brutal example of this happened just a few weeks ago. My wife and I were having dinner with two other couples. And one of the couples, they've only been married for a few years. And, and the husband happens to be a sports fanatic, which I can respect. I, mean, I just love sports. And he's telling us something that had happened like a couple weeks before, how he was in the living room with three games going on. When his wife started talking to him from the kitchen, and in front of us, and in front of his wife, he kind of acts through the arm motions of pause, pause, mute, and then in a voice just filled with disdain, what? And he's describing this interaction as if his response was totally appropriate. And my wife looked at his wife, I mean, this beautiful, kind-hearted, gentle, most loving, positive person you're going to ever meet. And Shauna said his wife's face just fell in embarrassment and sadness because for her husband, some college ball games, which were under DVR control, mind you, were more important than listening to his wife in that moment and quite honestly in general. And the problem isn't that you might miss some life-altering detail of a story from your wife or one of your kids. The problem is that when you and I refuse to make time to actively listen and actively communicate that we're listening, we end up, what we end up communicating is, I'm not available and you're not that important. Now that's not what you're thinking, but that's what she's feeling. And if you're a man who allows this to remain a bad habit, of not actively listening, you will chip away at her level of respect for you and eventually your influence. And maybe there are problems in your home that aren't your fault. Maybe she did come into the marriage with problems and challenges and wounds. You know how I know that's fact? Because we all do. But if you go, it's not my fault, and ask me to own these problems that are her problems and you know to take on this responsibility, that's just too much. And, and that would be a good excuse if you're not a Jesus follower, because if you are a Jesus follower, there's a big problem. Because as Paul says, the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. Do you know what we have at the cross of Jesus? We have a picture of Jesus Christ proactively and reactively saying, Heavenly Father, these people have a lot of problems. And they are not my fault. But I'm going to take responsibility. I'm going to own their problems. And I'm ultimately going to own their joy, their happiness, their well-being. Their problems are now my problems. And their big problem, sin, is going to become my big concern. And if it takes dying for these people in order to solve their problem, even though it's not my fault, I'm not to blame, even though they got themselves into this, as the head of them, I will give my life in order to solve their problem. And with that in mind, the Apostle Paul says to me and to you as men, own the problems and the well-being of your wife and family like Christ owned the problems and the well-being of the world. Because when that happens, suddenly all of our excuses are nullified. Because the standard is Jesus. So before I go to the next part, I just need to ask, have you embraced this kind of responsibility? If you're married, is your wife convinced that she is your top priority? 
Is your family convinced that they are your top priority? Is your family convinced that you love and value them unconditionally? That you don't just wait for problems to arrive, that instead you proactively invest in your wife, proactively invest in her happiness and the strength of your marriage and the well-being of your children, that you take the initiative to read books, to seek counsel from more seasoned husbands and dads, to, and when you look, men, that you look at their lives, you look at their marriages, you go, I want to be that kind of man. I want a marriage like that, a family like that. Are you getting time with them? Do you actively pursue and build up your wife and your family in the areas of tension and conflict? Are they convinced that since they're worried about it, you're worried about it too? Is your wife concerned, convinced that her concerns are your concerns? Are they convinced that the things that are stressing them out you know and care about and that you are committed to, as the head of the home, to bring all of your resources to bear to solve those things? Are they convinced of that? Because if they aren't, your respect and your influence are at stake. The Apostle Paul goes on. He gives us a more practical aspect of relational and spiritual headship. And when you, when you read, wives submit to your husbands, the assumption would be that he would then turn to husbands and say, they're going to submit. Your job is to rule. But instead he says, no, husbands, here's how you're to respond to submission. You are to love your wives. Well, how? Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Men, as your wives submit, your response is to be loving, not ruling. Not by somehow setting up a command post and pointing to the fact that they're supposed to submit. Hey, I'm the man. I'm the boss. The Bible says submit. No. Our response to submission is to be sacrificial love. Do you know why so many women understandably hit the roof about the whole submission thing? I'm convinced it's because they've never been truly loved by a man who got this right. Because they're afraid. If I submit... My husband's going to just run all over me. If I submit, then my husband is going to use this to his advantage. But in the very same passage of Scripture that men, especially in certain religious circles, love to run and grab a hold of, the same text says our responsibility is actually greater. Because to love like Jesus is synonymous with sacrifice. So the good news is Paul's he's not commanding us to feel a certain way by saying men love your wives, which is good news. Like, legit, not to, like, boast or brag, but my marriage today, in many ways, is thriving. But in the 34-some years that we've been together, there were periods of days or even months where not only did we not feel love for one another, we didn't even like each other. We were directly faced with this teaching from Paul, and I'm telling you, by embracing it and taking it seriously is how we broke through to something amazing. But me as a man, by me as a man accepting fully my responsibility to love my wife as Christ loved the church unconditionally, sacrificially. So Paul's not saying feel a certain way. He's saying, husbands, regardless of how you feel in the moment, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. While we were in con- and how did Jesus love the church? That while we were in conflict, while we were in opposition to him, while we felt no love or affection, still he chose to lead the way and take responsibility and gave himself up for her, for us. You see, this isn't about feeling. This is about choosing to sacrifice. And the picture here is this, men. Jesus Christ 
loved the church in such a way that we were better off after he came than before. So here's the question for those of us men that are married. Men, is your wife better off now than before you came along? Or is she kind of missing the good old free single days? <laughs> like I was doing a lot better before this bozo came along. So see, you'll know you're loving your wife like Christ loved the church when she's able to say in her own words, my life is so much richer and so much better because you're in it. I can't imagine life without you. Life is better because you are with me. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy and cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And see, there's all this kind of beautiful and flowery and ooey-gooey, mushy stuff, and it's so rich in symbolic language, I don't have time to go into it. But I think Paul was smart enough to know that many of us men, we just we wouldn't get it. It would go over our head that we can be a little emotionally constipated, and we just wouldn't get it. So he adds, okay, let me put it this way. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Now that I can get, okay? See, I take really good care of me. I'm very sensitive to me. When I'm hot, I deal with it. When I'm cold, I deal with it. I fix it. When I'm hungry, I fix it. When I'm sad, I fix it. When I'm tired, I fix it. When I'm feeling frustrated or overwhelmed, I do whatever I need to do to address it. I am very sensitive to me. So Paul says, husbands, men, I want you to become as or more sensitive to the physical, emotional, and mental needs of your wife as you are to yourself. That's what it means to love your wife as I have called and positioned you to love her. See, men, you may have been told that you're so insensitive, but the problem is we're not insensitive. It's just that all our sensitivity is focused on us. I mean, I'm so sensitive to me, and you're so sensitive to you. And Paul says... That loving your wife as Christ loved the church is about proactively, reactively refocusing your sensitivity to the emotional, physical, and mental needs of your wife. As much or more than you have been to yourself, loving her as I have loved the church. And that is challenging. And here's why. Because it strikes at the core of our selfishness. See, I don't want to take responsibility for my wife's physical, mental, and, and, and emotional well-being. I mean, women as a shock, or complex, okay, in my experience, and it's like I've got other things that I can do in my life that are far less complicated and far, offer far more immediately gratifying results while still directly helping my wife and my family. It's why historically men can be so tempted to just throw themselves into a career, okay, because in that environment, Men are able to do projects and tasks that have a beginning and an end, and we often get recognition for our successes while also providing for our family, which is why we get defensive if you as a wife say you don't feel like we actually love or value you, and then we begin to point to all the hours that we're working and the hard work we put in and all that we do for our family. But men, though there may be some truth to what we're saying, work can also be a means to avoid engaging the things that make for a real and thriving relationship which matters so much more than a career. We're responsible to dig deeper, realizing that my wife's perception becomes my reality. 
And we need to step back from that initial defensiveness and go, have I really been actively and proactively loving my wife as Christ loved the church? Or am I, have I been off balance? And chances are, we are. And besides all that, let's be honest. For those of you men who are married, uh, part of why we push back on the responsibility that Paul is calling us to is because you didn't marry her for her sake. You married her for your sake. What I mean is your primary motivation in who you married wasn't because you wanted to make their life better. You married them because you wanted to make your life better. And in our egotism and pride, we just assume that our wives' life will just be better by default. I mean, of course, Shauna, her life's going to be better because she's married to me. Like, it just happens, right? It was the same with you and who you married. And, And ladies, before you play that card against us, let's just admit it, you thought the same thing. You had the added bonus, though, of thinking, I can fix him. (laughs) I can work those rough edges off. I can change him. See, every man that ever gets married is getting married because he thinks his life will be better because of who he's marrying. And I don't think we can fault each other for that. That's just part of being human. But listen, for a marriage and a family to thrive, your attitude and my attitude has to change. And for your marriage to be happy and fulfilling, which is what we all want, our marriage to be. We've got to refocus our our attention and decide as men, I'm going to love this woman as Christ loved the church, which means I'm going to embrace my responsibility to proactively and when necessary, reactively put her desires and what she thinks and what she feels and what she wants ahead of what I want and think and feel. And when that happens, then I am loving her as Christ has called me to love her. And if we're facing differences and conflicts that we can't seem to overcome on our own, then I'm going to take the initiative to pray. I'm going to take the initiative to read, to get us relational help, to seek advice, to get get me into counseling, to get us into counseling. And wives, let me just say, if you've got a husband that ever suggests or is open to to counseling, that's a great start because a lot of guys will not do that. Whatever it takes to not just settle and just stay married, but to want to be married. Spiritual leadership is about love, and to lead is to love, and to love is to lead. Not ruling, not commanding, not controlling. Proactively and reactively putting our wife and their needs ahead of our own. So ladies who are dating or hoping for a future marriage, here's my advice. Don't fall for the guy who's got the Bible app on his homepage, and he can quote a lot of Bible. A guy who talks about growing up in church, but who's selfish or impatient, or stingy with his generosity towards others, or is consistently critical or controlling, because that will not end well. At the same time, if you meet a guy who just takes responsibility, especially to serve or sacrificially take a stand for others, who understands how to love and honor and cherish and tune in to your needs, don't be thrown off by the fact that he can't quote as many verses as you can, or that he didn't grow up in the same church environment that you did, or he doesn't know everything that you know, And even though he may struggle to talk as openly about his faith as you do, because spiritual leadership is not about performing Christian tasks, it's about sacrificial love. It's the ability to put others first, especially the woman that God has placed into his life. That's what it's all about. For some of you men, your pushback might be, Chad, you don't know my wife. Uh, And don't tell her I said this, but my wife is not going to follow anyone. Okay, she is not a follower. Uh, And honestly, I don't want to lead her, okay? And and even if I did, I don't think there's anything in the world that I could do to convince my wife to follow me. 
I mean, she's a red, she's an eight on the Enneagram, she's a lion, she's a commander, she's a boss by nature. She has the spiritual gift of telling me what to do. And yeah, I, I think I've lost, she's lost some respect for me, uh, but what do I do? And, and here's what you need to do. You, you just need to love unconditionally. And love as Christ loved us unconditionally, proactively love and take responsibility and take responsibility. And if you are hitting walls that the two of you together cannot overcome on your own, then you take responsibility to get help, to get counseling, to get both of you into counseling, but you don't give up taking the initiative to show love and taking responsibility regardless of how you feel, your temperament, your personality. You take responsibility like Jesus because there is within that woman as hard as her shell may be, as thick as the walls may be, and there's likely a very good explanation as to why that is. There is inside of that woman a part of her that wants to be loved, honored, and cherished. And over time, unconditional love and consistent stepping up and taking responsibility will slowly chip away at those walls and defensives. And when you finally get through, you will see a different person and it will all be worth it. And I'm telling you, sin has messed us all up That cause, in such ways. It, it just causes us to act in weird ways. Years ago, I used to do a lot of marriage counseling. Not anymore because I realized I wasn't as smart as I thought I was. But I was working with a couple where the wife, she was definitely like that strong alpha personality. Her husband was more the laid-back, golden retriever personality, laid-back, pretty passive. And on the surface, it just looked like his wife delighted in just irritating the snot out of him from time to time. And I'll never forget, in a moment of, moment of brutal honesty, she just acknowledged, sometimes I just do and say things just hoping I will make him mad enough that he'll take a stand. See, the irony in my experience is even the strongest, most leadership-oriented wife longs for a man who will take responsibility, which I believe is the thumbprint of God's design for this relationship. A man who knows himself and who will lead. He won't just wait for another conflict to arise, but he will be proactive in accepting responsibility and put the health and emotional health and happiness level of their marriage and well-being of their family as a priority And a man who, when the chips are down, that he'll step up and he'll be willing to sacrifice his own comfort and preferences for the well-being of his wife and his family. Men, there's something deep down in us that longs to be admired and respected. And there's something about the admiration and respect of our wife. I'm just telling you, when my wife expresses appreciation or respect or admiration for me, it just triggers something in me that makes me feel like I could take on the world. And I want that for you. And you can have a passive personality and still take responsibility and proactively love your wife. And if you do, and if you don't, don't give up. Eventually, you'll break through. And she will treat you differently with admiration and respect because there is within your wife this part of her that wants this kind of love so desperately. And if she won't follow, odds are it's probably because she's never been led in unconditional sacrificial love. And I don't mean she didn't have a strong dad that commanded everyone around and told everybody what to do. She may have had that, but she's never been made to feel like she's truly the most important person on the planet. But if you do, I'm convinced that in time, she'll respond. In fact, let me flip it and I'll close with this. If you're a woman, especially if you've been pushing back mentally in some of what I've said, 
I mean, let's just acknowledge you are a strong, capable, intelligent woman. All the temperament personality tests show you're a leader, not a follower. Just use your imagination for just a moment. Imagine that you're married and your husband would love you with the kind of love that I just described today. That he's made it consistently obvious that he's convinced that you are the greatest thing to walk the planet. Imagine that he cares more about you than his job or anything or anyone. Not that he's a doormat or doesn't have his own interest. It's just that you are the center of his affections and the love of his life. And he regularly does whatever he can to know and speak your love language, to support you and clear the path, to do whatever he can to give you a clear opportunity to thrive as a woman with your personal gifts and talents and passions and callings. And when the inevitable conflict arises, instead of shutting down or completely withdrawing, he steps up and he engages. In fact, you're convinced there isn't anything he wouldn't do, not just to stay married, but to do what it takes to create a home where no matter how many years pass, you don't just love each other, you like each other and spending time together. How would you feel about submitting and following a man who loved you like that? How would you feel about being able to trust a man with that much of your life and your soul and your heart and your emotions? So, so Ben, leading the home is about taking responsibility. So my question as we wrap up is just twofold. The first is, does your family know that you're taking responsibility? And number two, are you proactively and sacrificially loving your wife as Christ loved the church? Because if so, then you're being the best man that God has called you to be, and God will honor that, and your marriage and your family will thrive, and so will culture. Let me pray for us. Father, uh, I pray for all of us in this room, and I just want to pray especially for the men are listening to me for the next generation of men that are in the hallway over. That, Father, that you, would, that you would give us the courage to step into and lean into the things, into our family, and certainly into culture. There's so many opportunities for us to step up to make a difference. And again, Father, all the statistics show what a difference it makes, the difference between an engaged healthy-minded man and a disengaged or absent man. And Father, in, in, in this world, it's just filled with so much confusion and chaos that, God, there's an opportunity for us to step into this gap. And so I pray for all of us as men that you would give us a clear and healthy sense of self that's defined by you and not culture or anything else. And that, Father, that you would give us the intuition and the perception and the understanding and the wisdom to love our wives and to love our families, and to love those around us as you have loved us, so that through us we might see an unmistakable work of, of you and your promises that come true. And so, Father, I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.